Welcome back to episode four of The S Word, a podcast about suicide prevention. My name is Sarah Kolbeck. I am the director of the Division of Suicide Prevention at the Comprehensive Injury Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And I'm joined uh, by Andrew, my colleague and friend. Hey, everyone. I'm Andrew Schramm, and I'm a faculty at the Medical College of Wisconsin in the Department of Surgery, and I'm a clinical psychologist and happy to have our wonderful guest today, Patty Schlater. Yeah. So Patty Slatter is our um, guest for today's episode. We are going to be talking about lived experience um, and the voice of lived experience in suicide prevention. Um, Before we get started, I just want to remind folks um, of resources that are available. Um, If you or a loved one is um, experiencing any sort of distress, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273. 8255. You can also um, utilize the crisis text line by texting the word talk to 741741 and have access to um, crisis text counselors who are available 24 7, 365. Um, So just encourage you to take advantage of those resources. I'm really excited to introduce our guest for today, Patty Slatter. I have known Patty for a number of years now. Um, I met Patty initially through the Prevent Suicide Wisconsin Coalition. Um, Patty and I both serve on the steering committee for Prevent Suicide Wisconsin. And Patty was the first person I ever heard talk about her story as a suicide attempt survivor. And I can tell you that hearing her story and her experience really not only opened my eyes to what it is to be a suicide attempt survivor, but also gave me courage to be able to tell my own story as someone who lives with chronic suicidal ideation. Um, And so she, maybe not not knowingly, um, inspired me to be brave and vulnerable and to share my story so that I, you know, could be a part of helping reduce stigma. Patty um, provides her story um, to folks across the state of Wisconsin um, through zero suicide trainings, um, through NAMI, through additional trainings. I know she does trainings with law enforcement. And so just is um, a really wonderful person and a gift to the world of suicide prevention. So I am excited to uh, have Patty with us today. Um, welcome, Patty. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah and Andrew, for having me be on here. Absolutely. So something that um, I always ask our guests uh, before we kind of dive in is, um, you know, you obviously work in the suicide prevention space. You have lived experience. If there was one thing that you wish folks knew about suicide and suicide prevention, what would that be? So for me, a big thing um, was I wish people knew about how much language matters. Mm -hmm. Um, I do a lot of work with language matters and changing our language. Um, I am a big time with that. And how much our facial expression matters when we're talking to somebody that's struggling with suicide. Um, how much our words, whether it's somebody that's attempted multiple times, that struggles multiple times, 
you know, what we say to them really matters. And I will talk more about that in my story, but that they might hold on to that for years of what you say or your eye rolls or whatever. Um, it makes a difference when all that person might want to be no want at the time is to be heard. Absolutely. That's so helpful. And, you know, our first episode of the podcast with Leah Rolando focused on, um, you know, language around suicide. And so I really appreciate you reinforcing that with us. Um, I think, you know, people are um, often really trying to do their best around language and sometimes slip up and make mistakes Mm -hmm. and that's fine, but it's, you know, that constant um, learning and trying to do better. Um, So I just appreciate you uh, reminding us of that, Patty. All right. Um, So we'll jump into our discussion around lived experience. Um, Lived experience uh, is a term that means that somebody has experience in their life, either as a suicide attempt survivor or as someone who has survived a suicide loss, someone who lives with chronic suicidal ideation. And we've talked about this in the past, but lived experience and the voice of lived experience is so important to suicide prevention because um, oftentimes when we're devising suicide prevention strategies, we're thinking about this from a very sort of academic or clinical lens. Lived experience and, and bringing in the voice of lived experience helps us think more about how our um, prevention strategies and our clinical interventions and our public health interventions affect people who are actually experiencing the crisis. Um, And that's so important because ultimately suicide prevention is about the person um, and it's about the system and making the system better for the person in crisis. So Patty has so graciously agreed to share her story with us today. Um, and help us understand about um, help us understand um, that perspective and learn more about how systems can can both help folks in crisis and how perhaps they could be more helpful to folks in crisis. So I am going to stop talking. Andrew, do you have anything you want to say before Patty jumps in? No, just I want to express my sense of gratitude um, for Patty. This is really. Um, you know, as Sarah said, you're an expert and um, you're helping us and our audience understand uh, this on a deeper level by sharing your story. So just want to say thank you. All right, Patty, I'm going to turn it over to you um, to share your story with us and with our listeners as you are comfortable. Well, I just want to, again, thank you, Sarah and Andrew, for asking me. It's an honor to share my story and um, a privilege to be able to share my story throughout the state of Wisconsin. And again, my name is Patty Slatter, and I love that we are out of winter and in springtime and warmer weather. I have a rescue dog named Cinnamon that is the love of my life. I volunteer with NAMI Rock County and Prevent Suicide Wisconsin, as well as sit on numerous committees throughout the state of Wisconsin and the county. I also have a part-time job that I love. I I enjoy sharing and educating individuals with my life experience with mental health challenges. I have been able to do that for the last eight years. In my spare time, I like to read and I just started knitting and selling hats. Today, I'm going to share with you a part of my life experience. I don't say story anymore because this is my life. 
This was my life experience. Somebody a year ago said, I like what you changed in your story. And it just hit me wrong. This is not a story. This is my life. So I now say life experience. Some of my lowest points, what has hurt me and what has helped me on my road to recovery. So I was not diagnosed until I was 21. I remember feeling sad all the time in high school and trying to stay busy. I was in sports all season and summertime I water skied. I couldn't name how I was feeling. No one talked about it back in the 90s. So I ignored it and stayed busy. My family also was a big family with eight kids and my dad traveled and we were a Catholic family. So we just stayed busy and no one talked about their feelings. I cried a lot and was just not happy. It was after I was raped on my 21st birthday by a close family member that everything came out. I fell into a lot of drinking and would work all day and drink all night to cope. I would work all day and be fine when I was with people and then go home and cry all night and drink all night. It was like I was two different people living two different lives. I just didn't know how to deal with the feelings I was feeling, nor did I want to. I thought I was coping okay until my boss called me into her office. It was not about work. I had the number one sales. She asked me what was going on personally, and I lost it. I told her everything, and I cried in front of her. At the time, I was friends with a coworker, and my boss made my first counseling appointment during working hours. She made my first counseling appointment, not me, and had my friend take me to that first appointment. It was then that I was first diagnosed with depression and heard the word suicide ideation. This was just the beginning for me. Flashbacks started, and that was so scary. I had never heard of flashbacks, and all of a sudden, these memories were popping into my head. I had repressed years of abuse by a family member. Years of therapy and diagnoses were in my future. My first suicide attempt came shortly after that. I was going to go to a family gathering, and I just couldn't face my family. So right before my attempt, I reached out for help to a counselor, and that was my first encounter with the police with a welfare check. They took me to the hospital. Little did I know that my whole life was about to change. The next 20 years, I would have over 50 hospitalizations and 12 suicide attempts. I would be diagnosed with anxiety disorder, borderline personality disorder, major depressive disorder, recurring suicide ideation, and PTSD. Most of my attempts, I did not want to die. I just wanted to see my family to see how much I was hurting. And I wanted them to change and support me instead of supporting the abuser. After the 12th time, I realized they're not going to change. I need to be the one to change. Finding treatment when you have so many attempts and borderline personality disorder did not come easy for me. Some treatment providers refused to see me and some would see me once and then drop me. And some hospitals, when I needed inpatient, would refuse to take me unless I attempted suicide. And sadly, that's what I would have to do. What people would say to me didn't help me in many situations. When I was struggling with a mental health condition, I would have, I would might have heard things, not heard things correctly or seen people correctly. But this is what I had seen or heard. 
I would see a police officer roll their eyes when they were called to my place for the fifth time by my counselor and say, Patty, knock it off. I had a pastor say, you should have completed your suicide. I had a nurse say to me early on in my treatment, this is going to be your life, so just get used to it. These comments were not helpful to me at all, and I held on to them for almost 20 years. One time when I was at a hospital and had to go to court in another city, the police came to take me to court. They came, they got me and handcuffed me and put me back in the crammed police car for the hour drive. It was morning when we left. I went into the holding cell to wait for court. Went to court, then back to the holding cell, just like all the other inmates. It felt like the day was taken forever. I kept asking the guard when I was going back and I got yelled at and I got mad and hit my knuckles on the wall and I got in trouble. We finally left and now it was dark out. We got back to the hospital and the nurse came running out and I was like, well, I thought I was in trouble. She was like, your mom was here during visiting hours. That was when we realized you were not back yet. They forgot me in the holding cell. I felt like I was treated like a criminal when all I wanted was mental health, health help. Acceptance played a key role in my recovery. I had to accept my part in my mental health challenges and I had to start to do the work that my therapist had been suggesting all those years, imagine that. I started to attend DBT group, Dialectical Behavior Therapy group. At first, I was going just to get out of the house and something to do, as well as the fact my therapist strongly suggested I go. Shortly after starting the group, I found out how challenging the steps were with my real life. Things really didn't start to change until my therapist started having me teach a skill here or there, and then I felt compelled to work on the skills because the members of the group would ask me questions about the skill the next week. That is when things started to really change in my journey. I also realized I needed my medications. I was diagnosed with a physical condition, and that helped me realize I needed to stop starting and stopping my medications. I started to trust my doctors and the team of doctors, and we started to work as a team instead of against one another. There was one more major thing that helped my recovery, and that is when I started volunteering. I started with helping organize a 5K, and they needed a lived experience speaker, and they asked me if I was ready to share my story. They would work with me on it. After a lot of praying about it and a lot of support from friends, I shared my life experience for the first time about eight years ago. NAMI Rock County was at this event, and then I started to get involved with them organizing more 5Ks and more speakings and more trainings. About a year later, I found Prevent Suicide Wisconsin and got involved with them and got asked to be faculty for the Wisconsin Zero Suicide Training. And I sit on several committees for them and representing change for the state. One big thing I have done with Prevent Suicide Wisconsin is using my lived experience to bring change to language on suicide for the state of Wisconsin. I was amazed at how giving back was helping me feel better. I continue to, find, to find, fight to find the right counselor, but I also had to become my own advocate. I fought and fought to find the right one and try now to keep her. I've had the same psychiatrist for over 15 years, and she now has seen the good, the bad, the ugly. However, she has stuck with me and tells me how proud she is of me.
She even asked me at the end of every appointment how she did and if she needs to change anything because she knows the work I do with the state and what we are trying to do. That makes me feel worthy and like I am doing good work. For me, recovery is knowing when to ask for help and asking for help. It's not never having another thought of suicide or down day. I have a lot of physical health and chronic health conditions, so life for me is hard. Asking for help for me is the hardest part for me, especially after sharing my story and that I'm in recovery, but I think it only makes it more real. Recovery for me is like a roller coaster, and I want off many times, but I talk to my people, gain support along the way. I know my signs and signals when things are going down the down part of the roller coaster. For me, success is what I'm doing now on recovery and sharing my story, sitting on committees to make change in mental health and suicide prevention. And I want to continue to see that work, see that change. That's my, part of my story. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much, Patty, um, for sharing your life. Um, I appreciate the framing that you gave um, around that. And this, you're right. It's not a story. This is your life. You're living this. It's living experience. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not lived experience. It's living experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, every time I hear your story, I learn something new. Um, and so I just have so much appreciation for you um, and your willingness to share. Um, one of the things that you said um, a, a bit earlier in the story that I think um, really jumped out at me was, you know, throughout your attempts, you were really ambivalent about, um, you know, wanting to live or die. You know, you it, it wasn't necessarily that you wanted to die. It was, um, you know kind of a way to escape what you were feeling. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I've heard with other folks that I've talked to as well is that it's not about um, wanting to die necessarily. It's about wanting to escape. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. And I, yes, I will. That's a great question. And I do think a lot of um, people that struggle with suicide ideation, at least for me, Um, that's how it is. And still to this day, because I struggle with a lot of physical, it's, I want the pain to end. You know, I'm just tired. I'm very, very tired. And I want the pain to end. And, um, the last, my last suicide attempt was eight years ago and I had planned the suicide attempt. And I remember, um, getting to the ER no, not even getting to the ER. Um, when the ambulance came to the the site, um, and I'm not going to describe, I don't believe in describing the suicide attempt. Um, they came and I said, I need help. And they said, we're going to get you help. And I said, I just wanted the pain to end. And they, you know, I went to the same ER that was not treating me great throughout the other years. And they treated me great this time. And I don't know what changed over the years, but I just said, I need, this needs to stop. I need to be the one to change. And I actually called my counselor right from that ER room. And I said, I know you're going to be mad at me. You know, this is what I did. And she's like, I'm not mad at you, Patty. You know, um, I understand. And my counselor today, she will um, walk me through it too. And and she's like, you're needed in this world. This is what you do. And I understand that you just want the pain to end, but we got to get through this, you know, and 
right now for me, sometimes it's just, and she'll ask, what do I need to do? What, what can I do to help? And um, I'm like, just listen to me. Just listen to me. I need somebody to know that they're listening to me. Yeah, the feeling of truly being heard is so powerful. Um, Patty, I had a question, and if you're comfortable sharing, <clears throat> you mentioned the role of trauma in in this, and I just wonder if you feel like part of your journey has been getting help specifically with the effects of the trauma. Um, yes, I have had EMDR. I have had DBT. DBT was the most helpful for me. Mm -hmm. And then EMDR just recently has really helped me go forward with the trauma, um, specifically. Um, and I had to walk away from my family for a while, mm -hmm. um, through that. Um, I think if my family would have reacted a little bit differently, my whole life could have changed. This might not have been my life. Um, but I also, like I said, I had to take responsibility um, for some of this as well um, with some of my actions um, and not stay in the pit. Um, but it's really, really challenging when you're feeling that bad. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't, I lost friends, I lost family, I lost a lot. But then when I did start going back to family, um, I set time limits, you know, um, and I had friends that stuck with me that, how's it going? How's it going? Um, trauma did play a big role in, in it. Um, and counseling, I've been in counseling ever since, um, sometimes twice a week. Um, I've had trauma at hospitals. I cannot go back to a hospital. Um, I know I might need to, but I am big on um, respite care. You know, the um, I can't think of the name right now. I have a lot of brain fog. Uh, we have six respite centers, you know, throughout the state of Wisconsin that we can go to as long as we're not in a, in a severe crisis. Yeah. That like a peer I run respite. Peer yeah. run respite. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Sure. Um, yeah. I would rather go to a peer run respite for a break versus a hospital. I did go to a hospital and just recently, um, and I spent eight hours in the ER waiting to get it admitted. And once I got admitted, my dog's not there. My coping skills aren't there. My friends aren't there. You know, you sit alone in a room. Um, I had physical conditions that started popping up. I, it, it's, it's, it wasn't for me. And I begged the doctor, let me go home. I have more coping skills at home than I do, you know, so I really, but I have to be the one to reach out to my friends when I'm struggling. Nobody else can do that for me. And that's the biggest message that I can say to people. Nobody can dig you out of that pit. Um, you have to do the work to reach out for help. Um, I am really struggling physically with some physical challenges, chronic illness um, that I have going on, which also triggers the mental health. And I have used the text hope line, text, text home, text help, text whatever you need to text. You can text NAMI, you can text hope. Um, 
that it gets through to the text hopeline um, to 741741. And I have texted three times in the last week just to have somebody talk to. And I'm not ashamed of that. Um, yeah. I want to just share with, um, for folks that maybe aren't familiar, um, and to, to give you a breather, Patty, just want to tell folks a little bit about dialectical behavior therapy. Um, so this is called, you know, kind of a third wave cognitive behavior therapy. Um, and a big part of it is kind of acceptance of tension between um, being totally present to our current experience and current suffering while also moving forward and trying to create change. Um, and part of that is done through mindfulness. Um, and then also core to dialectical behavior therapy is distress tolerance. So, uh, finding ways of tolerating difficult feelings, uh, and then emotion regulation and, uh, interpersonal effectiveness. So, um, those are kind of the core components of DBT. I just wanted to share with our listeners, mm-hmm. Patty, anything you would add about like DBT or which aspects of it you felt were most helpful? DBT, all the skills, um, the acceptance piece was really huge for me. It was right when I got my diagnosis of POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, Mm -hmm. which is completely out of my control. And my, I remember the therapist saying, can you just accept that you have POTS? And I said, no, I cannot. So just stop. And she's like, you're not going to move forward until you accept that this is, this is your life. Mm-hmm. And um, it's one of the steps and she's, she's right. Um, but there's different, and how do you make um, lemons out of, um, l- make lemonade out of lemons, you know, and different skills. And it walks you through the different skills. And I believe it's the most effective and Andrew, you can probably, um, tell me if I'm wrong, but most effective skill set right now to help with suicide ideation mm-hmm. that they're using. Um, yeah, current. that's my understanding. And, you know, originally developed um, as a treatment for some of the challenges that people living with borderline personality disorder face. Um, part of the DBT that I think is um interesting to just note is that the uh, creator of it, Marsha Linehan, um, is just an extremely accomplished uh, clinician and researcher. And um, I think about 10 years ago, she wrote an op-ed for the New York Times um, and, and shared her lived experience that she had herself had struggled with suicidal ideation and had been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Um, and so I'm I'm glad that 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 was helpful, and especially the skill building. It sounds like it feels good to have, you know, tools that we can use rather than feeling like emotions are um, totally out of our control. And I think the skills that we can use, but the thing that really helped me too was being able to teach, being given the tools to say, Patty, you need to teach this next week. It mm. challenged me and it forced me to actually use the skills, you yeah. know, and I don't think sometimes we get 
forced to do something in treatment sometimes. And sometimes we need that challenge um, to say, and then bring it back to the group, our group peers, because then that really forced me on that road to recovery mm-hmm. with our peers. One of the, th- uh, the other things, and you said a lot of things that were just so profound. Um, what I think the thing that struck me the most was your comment about how recovery is, it's lifelong. It's not, um, you know, I have this problem and then it's gone. Um, you know, and I've felt that in my own life, you know, when I had struggles in my early twenties and then I didn't struggle for a long time, um, or the struggle maybe looked different. Um, it was still there, but it wasn't as present in my everyday life. And then I turned 39 and all of a sudden it was, it kind of took over my life for a year. Um, and then I got treatment and medication and I haven't had issues for, you know, about four years now. Um, you know, and can you just maybe talk a little bit about, um, you know, that, that process for you and what it's like, you know, and what, and what's helpful maybe in the really good times, um, you know, that you're able to then take forward with you when things are difficult. You know, I was doing really, really good before COVID hit. Um, I was doing really good, no hospitalizations. Um, I was proud of that. Like I hadn't been hospitalized in eight years. Um, haven't had a suicide attempt in eight years. And I've been speaking, public speaking about before COVID hit about once a month, I was out on the speaking route. I mean, because of my physical illness, somebody had to go with me, but that was all okay. People had no problem paying for somebody to go with me. That was all good to go, you know, traveling the state, But at the same time, I felt like I was at this higher standard of you can't attempt, you can't go in the hospital, you can't do anything because you're on the stage. And then COVID hit. And when you have had 50 hospitalizations, I I did go to one of my hospitals and I went through all the paperwork and I counted up my hospitalizations. And that was a eye opener. Um, There's several people now at one hospital that I work with now um, that we have mended fences and we work one-on-one with. Um, That is the most um, honoring experience that I have. One of the most honoring experiences that I have now with lived experiences to work with some of the nurses that treated me. it's quite the privilege, um, you know, because I was not the prime patient. <laughs> I was the patient that they flipped the mattress to get out of bed. You know, um, I was the patient that you're going to take this medication. Um, I was the one with self-harm. I was, I was not the prime patient. Um, I was angry. Um, and that through the treatment, but then I was doing better. Um, I was out of the hospital. I was not attempting. I mean, there was one time, one year that I attempted four times and was in the hospital. 
um, that was a very challenging year. So for me, I started, I remember one counselor that specialized in trauma. She goes, we are going to celebrate one. We did a wellness recovery action plan and where we, it was like 12 pages long where this was our wellness recovery action plan. And it had all the skills sets. It had what we were going to do. It had names. And that was when we would call the police a lot to say, you know, she needs help or whatever. And that's when I got the eye rolls from the police and stuff like this. And now I work with the police. I love them, but I don't want them at my house. (laughs) Um, And I tell them that. But um, because of the trauma, not because of anything they did, but because, as you heard in my story, I have trauma from the police. Um, And so for me, we started counting down the days. Okay, I had a week with no self-harm. I had a week, a month of no hospital. We started celebrating those small victories. So when I... I made a year of no suicide attempt. That was a celebration, huge celebration. And then two years and then three years. So then eight years and um, sharing my story for the first time, that was a huge open door for me. And then more people wanted to hear my story. So then, you know, and I started to feel like they want to hear me um, so I can do better than COVID hit. COVID and the lockdown made me feel like I was back in the hospital, you know, doing puzzles and doing, doing different things. And so totally, I mean, my counselor was like, I will come to your house. I will deliver your groceries. I will do whatever I have to do. I had, I had home health. Thank goodness. I had home health still coming to my house four days a week, five days a week. Um, otherwise I don't know where I would be. Um, cause they were the only ones I would see. I'm single. I live by myself. I, so eventually I adopted a dog. Um, it took me three dogs to find my dog cinnamon because everybody was adopting dogs, but cinnamon is the love of my life. She's the perfect dog for me. Um, she's a rescue dog. She's 12 years old. Um, but she knows my physical health problems as well. Um, and I ended up in the hospital for the first time after eight, nine years of not being in the hospital. And I thought I failed. I thought I failed. I thought nobody's going to want me to speak anymore. Nobody. It took me a long time to prepare my speech for, um, zero suicide. And then somebody said to me, you know what, why are you any different than somebody else? They need to hear it. Mm-hmm. Why are you any different? You know, so then I just added that into my story. And um, yeah, and and it's still a struggle. It's still a struggle. Um, now I've been diagnosed with more physical health challenges. And I have to fight every single day the suicide ideation. Because physical health challenge, you know, I used to say, God, give me a physical health challenge. It'll be easier than a mental health challenge. Don't ever, you know, I have a strong faith, but I'm like, don't ever challenge God with that because it's not any different. Um, I used to say doctors know how to treat physical health conditions. They don't know how to treat mental health. It's just as big of a battle. 
And now I have both that I have to battle. But I thank God for my team. I thank God that that um, for me, it's my faith. And I thank God that my psychiatrist has never left me. And she is just on the same team with my physical. And even my counselor sits on my physical health team in my in my home health meetings. And I, I can't ask for a better team. That's so amazing really how this is all treated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, they're treating the whole person, which is they so are. critically but I important. Had to fight. Mm-hmm. You have to fight. You have to yeah. be your own advocate. You have to be the center of it and make it work. Otherwise, it's, it, it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to kind of highlight as well, Patty, is that kind of the role of meaning making and, and finding what makes your life feel vital and uh, what feels meaningful for you. And I think um, a lot of times maybe providers focus on in the medical model, you know, it's very symptom reduction. And sometimes I think what's missing is asking, well, what makes you want to live and what are the things that you find meaningful in your life? Any thoughts on that? For me, it's my faith. Um, for me, it's right now telling my story and to save lives. Um, there's a reason I'm going through what I'm going through. There has to be. Um, I don't know what that meaning is yet. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really hard question for me to answer right now. Um, sure. Because I'm being um, treated for some things where I can't move and speak at times. Um, that doctors don't have answers and I just got gene tested and um, there's, there's a a gene that you wake up from anesthesia and you can't move or speak. And it's very, very rare. Why do I have this very, very rare disease? Um, And I have lupus. And I mean, I got um, all these rare lupus is not rare, but POTS was rare at one time. And, um, why do these things keep happening to me? Um, but there's going to be a reason. And I don't know, um, when POTS was very rare, now more people have it. People would come to me and Patty, I just got POTS. Can you help me manage this? Can you help me figure it out? And so people would come to me and, um, I just pray that, Maybe there's, you know, in sharing the story and sharing and speaking, God's going to use me to help and save other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think for providers that are out there, and this is a reminder for me too, that we need to think about mental health, not just as getting rid of symptoms, but of helping people move toward a life where there is meaning and, and things that um, make them want to get out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Patty. So we're getting close to the end of the hour and I want to end kind of on a high note. And I just, so Patty, your dog cinnamon, um, every time I see her picture on Facebook, I just smile because she's adorable and I know how much she means to you. 
I also know how much my pets mean to me. Um, I call my dog Briscoe, my therapy dog. My mom actually was the first person to sort of call him that because she noticed how my life improved. My mental health improved when he came into my life Mm -hmm. now about three years ago. And I wonder if you could just talk about Cinnamon and how she supports you and how she helps you and how she's such an important part of your coping. Cinnamon has been a huge part of my mental health and physical health. You know, there is something about being single and living by yourself, but then coming home and there's a happy dog waiting to see you. You know, um, she sleeps with me. She takes up most of the bed, (laughs) you know, and you can't move her. Um, You know, she has to be like right on me. And um, she loves her her belly being rubbed. Yeah. She is just gives kisses. She loves all my home health care team more than me when they come here. <laughs> it's all about them. Um, than me. Um, but I can see two years ago, I got her on Father's Day. It'll be two years in June. And we had to drive two and a half hours to get her. And I think I can't imagine my life without her. And um she's 12 years old. She has, she has health conditions. Um, so we found out that she has, um, some health conditions and I thought, God, you know, what a perfect dog for me, you know, that we've had, we had a lot of blood work her first year of her life and she has Cushing's disease for a dog and she's doing really well with it. And, um, I just bought her a dog stroller so she can, we can do longer walks. <laughs> Cute. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> and a little pink dog stroller. So I can't wait for warmer weather so we can go on longer walks. And, and, um, she is my best buddy. I call her baby girl. And, um, I can see my mental health really improved when I got her. Yeah. Yeah, I I hear you. And I think, you know, having someone to accompany you on walks, which walks, you know, getting out in nature, you know, is helpful in and of itself, but having a partner in crime to do that with, especially when someone, you know, a dog is cute and cuddly as cinnamon is, um, so helpful. So <laughs> that's great. What kind of dog is cinnamon? Is- she is a cockapoo. Oh, so she's, she's little. A cutie. She's little. She's a little 20 pound dog. Yes. Dogs are the best. Yeah. Well, thank you, Patty, so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, I think, you know, it's so important for folks to hear um, from someone with living experience, Um, you know, especially as we're, again, talking with folks that, you know, are working maybe in clinical spaces. you know, hearing, um, how things affect you, what things are helpful to you is just, it's, um, it's a gift, um, that you give to folks. And I just appreciate it so much. Um, and just want to say thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. So our next episode will be coming in May. We're going to talk about, um, the intersection of mental health and suicide since May is mental health month. Um, So we'll be 
having a conversation around mental health and suicide in May. Um, just a reminder for folks, if you need resources, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255 or text the Hope Line at 741-741. As Patty mentioned, that is a resource that is helpful to many, many folks. And just a reminder, Andrew and Patty, to take some time for yourself today. And for folks that are listening, take some time for yourself. Do something nice for yourself today. Um, And we will talk to you next month. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Take care.